to 2 Kings chapter 2. This will be a little bit of a blast from the past, not, not too distant, but for those of you who remember evening services outside, and this is the last sermon that I preached in the Elijah narrative and um, close to deployment, and I thought it would be, be helpful again tonight. And this, this is what happens when you swap out your mics and do not completely put it in properly. Um, this is the final story of Elijah. He's, he's, already, he's gone through his ministry of confronting kings and Queen Jezebel and calling down fire and, and all these amazing things. And now it is time for him to be taken up the Lord. So let us read uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 14 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were there in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today your, the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted by the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, What shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. This is God's word. When I decided it was unwise to preach a, a new sermon, I thought, well, what sermon should I preach? 
And my mind very quickly rested on this one. This is a passing of the guard. It's it's the passing of the mantle. This is the last story of Elijah narrative. and, And the Lord is about to take Elijah into heaven. And all of those around him are reeling. And here at Faith Church, we're also experiencing a season of change. This morning, we heard Pastor Mulker's acceptance letter to come and be our new senior pastor. And, and that's good. It's an incredible blessing and provision, much faster than any of us has humanly thought. I, in fact, do you remember when I was preaching as I was sick and I would say, hey, look, you know, because I was sick, we delayed our pastoral search. And humanly speaking, that's not the way to go about it. And yet the Lord provided. Um, but it does mean that our brother Dick and our sister Gail will, will be leaving us. And even a little sooner than we thought. You know, my situation, given how I'm feeling, I, this will most likely be my last sermon before CAR-T. And best scenario, I come back, mostly healed, a healing in a couple weeks. I'm, I'm getting back into the job, in full recovering mode, getting into the pulpit. Worst case, unlikely, unlikely, I think, but worst case, this could be my last sermon ever. We don't know. Of course, we've had other sorrowful changes. We've been praying and mourning the passing of our our dear brother, Tom. Two days before he died, he was the life of this party, celebrating his 70th birthday, and now he's with the Lord. Changing seasons can be hard and painful. Not only is it hard to say goodbye to friends and loved ones, but it can be frightening from a kingdom perspective. And what if God takes away this person who's doing faith church or me so much good? You know, how do I go on? You know, whether take away means the people move away or they retire or, or they go home with Jesus. It's a scary thought. Right? What if Jesus takes away my, my friend who encourages me to follow him? That, that older man or woman who's been modeling Christ to me, the one who's been counseling me, discipling me. What if God takes away a pastor or elder in the church or the couple always hoping, opens their home in hospitality? What do I do? What do we do? Now, on one hand, we know there's something wrong with this thinking. God, God brings about all things. He, he plans the life and death and the comings and goings of his people. And, and yet, isn't it humanly understandable to feel that worry, that, that pang of fear, that anxiety, that when God takes those away from you who bring such comfort and encouragement that we're working together with you. And now they leave. It's natural to see the holes and say, what are we going to do? So here's the point of this passage for you today. This is God's word for you. Do not fear when saints depart. The Lord is at work. Do not fear when saints depart. The Lord is at work. And you're going to see the two parts of that in the two scenes. In the first one, in verse first eight verses, Elijah is leaving. And there is this quiet fear among the prophets. Elijah will soon be gone. And it's for good. Everybody knows about it. But no one's talking about it. Elijah and Elisha know about it. They're speaking about it in roundabout ways. Please stay here. I'm not leaving you. Please stay. No, I'm not leaving you. As the Lord lives, I will not leave you. Three times. The prophets, the other prophets know about it. They go to Bethel and Jericho. The sons of the prophets say, do you know the Lord? Yes, I know. Be quiet. And now somehow all the prophets know that, that God's going to take Elijah away. I and mean, they're prophets after all. Maybe it's been revealed to them. 
But no one, at least Elisha, can talk about it, wants to talk about it. It's like when a beloved family member is dying or a loved one is moving away and, and you just don't want to have to deal with it. It's so hard. You know that feeling when you know this is it's your it's your last meal together, it's your it's your last walk, it's your last this or that. You can count down those times before there's that separation, whether it's permanent or just for a long time. Well, but for Elijah, this is this is more than just sentimental reasons. Um, Elijah's been a powerful force. God has used him, if you remember his story, to, to challenge the kings and the pagan queen Jezebel and the false prophets in spectacular ways. And at least for a time, the Lord used him to bring the people back. Remember Mount Carmel, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And when Elijah leaves, Elisha calls out, my father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. Now, it's possible that he's referring to the chariots of fire, but it's more likely that he's referring to Elijah himself. In fact, that's what later on the king of Israel will say when Elisha dies and there's no chariots around. He, and what I think he's saying here is the forces and chariots of Israel shows how important Elijah was to the prophets at this time. It was like he was an army unto himself. The Lord used him. He was full of God's power. And you can see this supported by the, this idea of the storm that takes Elijah, Elijah, it shows God's power. Right? By the way, just, just a note, um, when we talk about Elijah being taken up by the chariots, it's actually the windstorm. The chariots divide him and, and Elisha, but then Elijah's taken up in this windstorm. And what does this windstorm show? It shows that the Lord, Yahweh, is the true warrior God. Right? Earlier in the, the challenge against the fake god Baal, who was supposed to be the storm god on Mount Carmel, he couldn't bring the storm. He couldn't send the lightning to kindle the sacrifice. Of course, the Lord could there. And he can use the storm now as a chariot to bring his servant up into heaven. It, it demonstrates God's presence. It's what you see, actually, in other parts of the Old Testament. It's the same used, word used in Job when the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. Right? That storm. It's used in Ezekiel 1 to show the presence of the Lord, the, the great throne scene, full of glory. There's this, this storm that shows God's power. It's, it's used to talk of his judgment. Listen to this way that God will rescue Israel when they're under siege from their enemies in Isaiah 29.6. It says, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. So this is the power of God showing that he's worked himself out in Elijah. <laughs> and they're afraid that Elijah's going. Everyone's beside themselves. What are we going to do now that he's gone? He confronted kings. He can bring down prophets. What can we do? It can be easy for us to feel the same way with us in the church, whether big or small. I mean, just think about the hole that our brother Tom's going to leave. I mean, who can, who can fill his laughter and his smile? And just, we're we're going to miss something there. With, there's a loss there. He's irreplaceable in that sense. And Faith Church won't quite be the same without him. And you can probably add your, your own stories here or other places of, of beautiful saints, of uh, stories of saints serving the Lord and, and then declining in vigor. And you see, you see them not able to do that quite as much. And, then, and, and they will go home to be with the Lord and you grieve for their loss, but you're also thinking they did so much. Who will replace their love and their service and their prayers? 
Well, as the Lord is taking Elijah away, though, he's making a point. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis notes in his commentary, leaders are instruments, they're not saviors. They're instruments, but they're not saviors. God can use anyone in his kingdom, anyone in the church, but they're willing tools that he uses to accomplish his purposes. They're, they're not the savior of the church. Jesus is. And, and humanly speaking, of course, we're going to miss people when they leave. But it's Jesus who builds the church. Will we miss their skills? Will we miss? Yes. But it's Jesus who builds the church. And we can never value anyone so like, highly that we think, well, the church can't go on without him. The church can't go on without her. Right? Whether it's, it's a pastor retiring, whether it's a loss of a loved one, it's Jesus who builds the church. Now, I think it is, you need to be clear here that Jesus doesn't promise that every single church will continue, and it could be that the loss of people in a particular church might cause it to close. And, and to go elsewhere, we have to, he's talking about the broader kingdom perspective here. But the big promise is that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. And that includes the loss of, of leaders, of pillars, of loved ones in the church. And so, remember, as saints depart, they are instruments, not saviors. Don't be afraid. And we see an example why not to be afraid in the rest of the passage here, 9 through 14, because the Lord is at work. And you, here you see the Lord as at work in Elisha. Just before Elijah departs, he gives Elijah the chance to make a request. And he says, give me a double portion of your spirit. Now, in Israel, the firstborn sons were given the double portion of the inheritance. So really what he's asking for is give me a full measure of the inheritance. Let me continue the ministry God gave to you. If you know the difference between Elijah and Elijah, their ministry actually looked very different. Elijah was the bringer of kind of wrath and, and confrontation, where Elisha, although he did call, pronounce judgment, he, he was in some ways a more gracious prophet, although he pronounced many similar signs. Interesting how that works. Different people, different ministry, but a continuation. Well, God confirms this request when Elisha sees Elijah taken up into heaven. And, and he takes up the cloak. And this is where we get the phrase, passing the mantle or passing the cloak, right? And then he strikes the Jordan and he crosses over it. And what is with this striking of the Jordan? And crossing, you know, they cross, strike, cross, strike, cross. It sounds a bit arbitrary, almost like a fanciful story out of a Greek myth, something along those lines. Well, God's word is here is, is history, but he's also presenting something very important here. A truth, which I'm indebted to Adele Ralph Davis in his commentary. There's, there's probably multiple significances in this crossing. The one is that they're, they're going out into the wilderness. There's a lot of meaning there. They're, they're going away. They're alone. But then there's another level. Um, when Elijah parts the Jordan with his cloak, God is, is sending a message. Or, um, you know, Elijah goes across. I'm with Elijah. Well, when Elisha comes back, God's saying he has the same power and I'm still with Israel. And think about the significance of the parting of the Jordan or the sea. I mean, this is somewhat, somewhat, somewhat reason, the same way, reason that John the Baptist went out into the Jordan. There's this very significant uh, symbol of God working there. But the parting, God rescues Israel from Egypt. Moses parts the Red Sea. God delivers them from their enemies. Then uh, God 
parts of the Jordan River so that Joshua and Israel can come over and conquer the promised land. And each time the crossing shows that God is with his people and he fights for them. And so you now fast forward to Elijah's time, passing over to Elisha, who's coming back. And Israel could think, well, that was all well and good for that Bronze Age time. 500 years has passed. Right? We have, it's the Iron Age now. We have new technologies, new customs, new enemies. Life is so different now. Can God really still be present in our time? And when God's prophets cross the rivers by parting the waters, and then the new prophet comes back, Crossing the waters again, God is saying, yes, times may have changed, but I am still God, and I am still in control. And isn't that where we are today? You know, our, our, uh, the message of the gospel is, is 2,000 years old. And it seems like every, double, uh, every decade or two, we're doubling our technology. How soon will it be before we can link ourselves to the Internet, before we can send men and women to Mars? Our culture is changing at such a rapid pace. I'm reading a book that's talking about the transition of ideas from truth to relativism in the mainstream in the 90s. You know, you used to, by 90s, everything was kind of relative and we didn't want to judge each other. So we went from truth to relativism to a new social orthodoxy, a new truth, which is very judgmental. And now Christianity is that obnoxious uncle at Thanksgiving that you hope you don't have to talk to, or maybe they even view us as worse. Well, it's easy to say, okay, you know, God was active in previous periods. But now, can the God of the Bible still be active today? I mean, I see those, those miracles in the Bronze Age or the Roman Empire, but what now? Is he, is he powerful? Is he even active? Well, Elijah and then Elisha show that God is active in every age. He's not just confined to one period. You see him working in very different time periods hundreds of years later. I personally find great comfort in this truth. But all the times may change, our God does not no matter how new something might be, how different, how strange, God is at work in this new age. God was with Elisha. Now let me just give a, a bit of an incidental application here. You also see the need for discipleship. It's not the main point of this passage, but let me point it out. You know, Elijah was the master and he apprenticed Elisha. Now, this was a special situation where two were called into a, a specific prophetic calling, but you had two people of God traveling along, one teaching the other as he's carrying out his calling. And I think the fact that Jesus references this in Luke 9, he says, no, no one who puts his hand to the pal and looks back is, is not um, fit for the kingdom of heaven. Elisha sacrifices ox and followed Elijah. I think that Jesus references this when some lukewarm followers approached him and he rebuffs them, says something that this applies to us, that we are to prepare the next generation of servants for our departure. Unless the Lord comes back, we need to be taking our skills and love for Jesus and share them. And that can be very practical where you take someone who's new at church or younger and you invite them into your area of Especially, it could, it could be the kitchen, it could be finances, it could, it could be the sound booth, it could be the flowers outside, and just say, hey, you know, come on and, and contribute to the church. It could be the nursery. Um, could, of course, spiritually, too, discipling the basics. Teach, let's, hey, let's go. Did you know D.A. Carson, is, he's, a, he's, he's, he's quite older now. I think he's probably in his 70s, but when I grew up, he was one of the heavy-hitting um, was one of the heavy-hitting theologians that I really benefited from. Do you know when he was in his college years, a very smart young man, there was a man from church who said, Don, 
this summer, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm working. You're, you're going to come over to my house every Saturday, and we're going to practice prayer. And they would pray for an hour or two. And this, this, this godly man discipled this young man who was to become this, this powerful exegete teacher evangelist. You come alongside in a Bible study. Some of you may know Ernie Zanone now with the Lord. He, he died, I believe, to, right after I came back. Or, uh, but he, he loved evangelism, so he would take me out to the Lindenwald Station and say, hey, help me hand out tracts. Where, where you take someone, the Lord's given you a gift, and you take them under their wing and say, hey, this is how you do it. Disciples are the basic building block of our faith. It's our, in our DNA. And, and God gives you older brothers and sisters the responsibility to prepare the next generation so that they can be powerfully used by the Lord when you are gone. Well, the Lord was at work in Elijah, and this is a powerful comfort. But you know we have even a better truth now. Turn with me to John 14. Because there's another time in Scripture when people are getting nervous when their teacher was about to leave. And Jesus is, is with his disciples. It's the last supper, and he, he, he starts talking about his upcoming departure. Well, he's really been talking about it through all of their ministry, but just like Elijah, the disciples didn't want to talk about it. But now it's clear. And it's starting to freak out a little bit. After all, this is Jesus. He's God's Messiah. He's performer of miracles. He's the one who puts the Pharisees in their place. And now he's talking about leaving. And they're worried. You can hear the disciples in John 14. Thomas says, verse 5, Lord, we don't, where you're, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Philip, verse 8, says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. But this is what Jesus says to comfort them in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do it. But the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world, world cannot receive. Because if you see him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. I think it's probably no accident that Pastor Ellis' last sermon series has been on the Holy Spirit. We've heard this passage. Isn't it amazing that Jesus says, I'm leaving, and you're going to do greater works than me. Not necessarily as in rising from the dead, per se, but the fact that the Spirit's going to be working through you. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be dispersed. It's going to be a global movement continuing throughout the ages, a kingdom that is building. I will build through you. My church will come up through this. So after these words of encouragement, Jesus, he dies, crucifies, he takes his time with them, and then he leaves, as he said. He's taken up into heaven. And the disciples, a little bit like Elisha, are standing there, Except this time, the angels come. In Acts 1, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And in the meantime, Jesus fulfills his promise. He sends the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, do you notice 
any similarities between Elijah and the coming of the Spirit. There's a wind. And there's fire. Think about that. There's a connection there. (laughs) That Jesus gives you the Spirit as he did Elijah and Elisha. Now, the Spirit works in different ways. We could say, in, in many ways, the Spirit is greater now. Now, we don't call down fire like Elijah did, but the Spirit is active in bringing dead hearts to life, in kindling a passion for King Jesus, for people who would say that's beyond possibility that they would ever claim Jesus as King to experience Him and say that He is Lord. And that is a strong encouragement for you today that the Lord is still at work, especially when someone leaves. Of course it's sad. But it doesn't matter who he uses. It's not the person, but the power who is at work. And it means that God can and does use the humblest believer to do his will. And so don't be afraid. Keep in step with the Spirit. And when you are afraid, depressed, discouraged, you step out in faith. You put on that armor. You call out and put on the reality that you are a new creature in Jesus. You, like Elisha, have put on new clothes. Only it's not from the prophet. It's from the Lord itself. And so by faith, let us live out that reality. Do not fear when saints depart. The Lord is at work. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you. Each one of us is needy in our own way. Each one of us really only knows the beginning of our limitations. But strengthen us that you have given us the wind and the fire of the Spirit. And let us live that out in faith this week as we serve you, as we pray, as we live for you. And so we ask for your grace. And we ask for faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.